the beads of sweat must have been dripping down his face. Uh, there's no way that he could have entered this moment and not been marked with sweat rings around his tunic. He'd entered the contest with some serious swagger, uh, some confidence, a deep trust that he would not be disappointed. He was unwavering in his commitment. His heart was filled with confidence as he considered the past victories. Uh, this wasn't a contest that he had initiated, but now he was in it, deep in it. And there was literally no turning back. He could feel the hate of the crowd radiating as he looked across sensing the tensions mounting well past the boiling point. The soldiers had their weapons ready. The volume was escalating past deafening and chaos was starting to descend. The chanting was getting louder. The screams were deafening. This was more than political pageantry. There was war being waged on this mountainside. And only one would leave victorious. But in the midst of the shouting and the screams, there was also an eerie silence that hung suspended over the spectacle. So what does he do? Does he start quoting lines from the ancient texts? Uh, does he look for an exit to run? Does he anxiously make his move? Does he throw in the towel and just back down? This is too much. No, he starts to talk trash. I'm not even joking. He, 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 our boy Elijah looks out at the mess and the mass of what is going on and starts to talk grade A basketball smack. What's going on? Uh, can your God not hear? Is he not there? Is he in the bathroom? Do you need to yell a little louder? Maybe he took a road trip, uh, but we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. Uh, if you're not at 1 Kings chapter 18 yet, you ain't never going to get there, so we're going to read without you, uh, but I would love to have you join us. Remember, uh, so far we're in our story on the true, true story of the world. We're knitting together, weaving together stories from your entire Bible, from creation all the way through to restoration. Uh, we talked about how God created everything good, right, and beautiful, but then human beings rebelled against God's good reign, bringing in all the brokenness, fear, loneliness, disease, death that we now experience. But God doesn't leave his world without hope, right? He makes a promise that one day he will send a rescuer, a deliverer, one who will make it right. And in Genesis 12, we learned about how he came to a man named Abram and said, hey, out of you, I'm going to make a great nation. And then all the people of the world are going to be blessed. He makes this promise. And our Old Testament begins to unpack that. That nation that was formed, Israel, became slaves in Egypt. But then God shows his mighty rescue. After 430 years of slavery, God brings them out and sets them free. And then he calls them to himself around Mount Sinai, showing them how to live free, how to be a good news people, how to be his community that showed him off to the entirety of the nations who looked in. And we learned that Israel got that right sometimes, and sometimes they, they really missed it. Uh, in fact, they had a cycle where they would trust God for a little while and then things would get good and then they'd turn their back on him in rebellion and start worshiping other gods. So then God would send somebody in another nation and they'd be judged and then they'd call out to God and say, God, will you set us free? And then he'd set them free again. And the cycle went on for a little bit. And then we learned last time we were together, Nick taught us how they cried out for a king. And so God appointed Saul a king who was good king for a little while, but then turned kind of shady. Uh, so God took his blessing off him and then called another man named David, remember, and said, hey, you're always going to have one of your line on the throne. 
And then the very next king was a man named Solomon who was a wise dude in some regards. He was called the wisest man ever. He wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, most likely, if you like that one. He also penned down a lot of the Proverbs that you read. But he really missed it in some ways too, right? At some point, he had a relationship with over a thousand different women, uh, some sort of relationship, which is not wise. Um, I don't know if you know that or not. Uh, He did some other things that you look at and you're like, that's not too smart. In fact, he divided the kingdom. And so there was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom after him. And the story we're going to come to today is a a king named Ahab. Uh, He was, in the grand scheme of history, super insignificant. You will not find him or Jezebel, even though they've gone down in infamy, uh, in the history books. Because they were minor. They were a blip. They were not a big deal. But in the story of God, they're a really big deal because they personify kings who set themselves up and say, worship these gods, not the true God. And as they did that, uh, the nation began to follow after them. And so we come into the story today with Ahab, Jezebel, Elijah, who had called down a uh, famine on the nation, said, hey, you guys aren't listening. You're worshiping false gods. Famine coming. Famine came three years deep in this famine. Whew, is where we are today. So if you've got a Bible, we're going to read this chunk of scripture. First Kings chapter 18. Uh, We'll start in uh, verse 17. When he, it was Ahab, saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, you troublemaker of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your families, your father's family have. You abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel. This is how he got in that situation we were describing a few minutes ago and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all of Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between opinion, two opinions? These two options, that, that word that he uses is a word that literally is like a, a little bird bouncing between. Have you ever seen that where birds bounce back and forth and they can't make up their mind which branch to sit on? Uh, That's the word he's using. How long are you guys going to be like little birds bouncing around, dealing flippantly with, uh, are you going to worship God or this other false God? And so how long will you waver between these two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. This is the setup. This is epic. Let your music start building here in your brain. If you're one of those people that puts a soundtrack to everything, this is like gladiator style music starting to roll. Uh, For those of you that are other sorts, you can do Lord of the Rings. It's the same deal. Crescendoing music. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it up into pieces and put it on wood, but not set it on fire. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. That capital L-O-R-D remembers the holy name Yahweh, the the personal covenant-keeping name of God that he'd given of himself. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first. And since there are so many of you, I guess he already started with that little bit of trash talk early, right? And since there are so many of you, Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. And then they called on the name of Baal from the morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted, but there was no response. No one answered. 
and they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, he waited a good three hours, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears as it was their custom until their blood flowed. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Let those words stand haunting. Then Elijah said to the people, come, come here to me. And they came to him and he repaired, prepared the, repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, who the word of the Lord had come saying, your name shall be Israel. Building into this, this deep, robust imagery of God's faithfulness through the ages. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it enough to hold two seahs of seed. Just say sacks of seed and you're good. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it out on the wood. And then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it the third time. Water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. Uh, remember, what was, the, uh, what was the phenomenon going on right now in their culture? It was a drought. And so they have a drought, they have no rain, and he's sitting here drenching this precious material, drenching this sacrifice with it. Do it again, do it again do it again. Imagine this, the anticipation, right? Because they didn't have running water, right? They don't run over to the hose. And it's not like when I'm filling up water balloons with Caden and I'm like, yo, fill that up, right? And then he turns the spigot on and then I'm like, whoa, 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 turn it off, right? And then he turns it off and then it's like, ah, now we need a little bit more. Turn that back on. Whoa, 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 turn it off. They've got to go fill up these things of water, the water dripping down this bloody bowl on this altar, everybody leaning in and the time it would take just adding to the expectation what would happen. The show down is real. At the time of the sacrifice, verse 36, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all the things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. How beautiful is that? I don't want you to do this to make me famous or so that I'm validified, but do it so that these people know that you are actually the true God and you're turning their hearts back to you, the true and living God. Then verse 38, the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, but not just the sacrifice, the wood, but not just the wood, the stones, but not just the stones and the soil and also licked up the water in the trench. And when the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. They see the power, the splendor, the majesty, the grandeur of God on full display in undeniable fashion and cry out, the Lord, he is God. And we're gonna read this next part because it's in the Bible, even though I don't fully get it. Elijah commanded them, seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let any of them get away. They seized them and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. And then he says to Ahab, go eat and drink, but there's a heavy rain coming. And then he tells his servant, uh, hey, get the chariot ready. You can't see it yet, but there's a lot of rain coming. God's proven that he is God. The people's hearts are turning back and it's about to pour. 
uh, and then some storm clouds start forming. Uh, we're going to go to the story in verse 19 in just a second. But before we get there, I want us to have a little conversation. Uh, because on a really big deal in this story is the prophets of Baal. This God that they were worshiping, that they were serving. Uh, Baal was often represented as a bull or a cow. Um, he very well may have been the God that was demonstrated, though not entirely sure when they made that golden calf uh, coming out of the promised land. He wasn't an Egyptian God, but they say that this is a heavy theme that's been riding throughout. Uh, Baal was the God of perfection, a protection and provision. He was often associated with fertility or fruitful crops. Uh, so if you wanted a, a bigger family or better crops, this is your God. You want a promotion, more wealth, or a better sex life, this is your dude. The one that ensures that your legacy will last and that you are provided for uh, was this God that you bowed down to. And it often involved mutilation or different sexual practices that were theoretically going to get him super excited. Then he'd make it rain and it's gross, but that's what he would do. That's how they worship. That's what they came together to say, like, this is the God that we want to serve. And we can get him in a place where he will bless us if we prove it to him enough. And that was how they structured their life to say, this is the one that we want to give us provision and protection to make us successful. And so there was no mistake. He was clearly setting himself up and against the true and living God. And so he's a false God. Does he have any power? Uh, the answer is yes and no, right? right, right? It's both. Um, yes, he has power. He has power to destroy their lives. He has power to pull them away from the worship of the true and living God. He has the power power to corrupt their relationships and to lead them to a place of destruction. That, that's all present with him. But no, he doesn't have the power to do whatever he wants. Uh, the psalmist can make fun of this. Isaiah makes fun of this. Like, Man, you guys worship idols, but then you made the idols that you're now worshiping. Like, how do you expect it? You carved its lips. It's not going to talk to you. You gave it ears like it can't hear you. But it has that power, that attraction and it's not just back then, though. This isn't just the prophets of Baal or the people of Israel. And so we look back at this epic story with some history lesson. Uh, hear this. We are always answering the question, who or what will we worship? Uh, that is just as true for us today as it was true for them that day. It, was just, it is just as true for you today as you drove here, probably in your car, though maybe some of you scootered. Uh, either way, you got here uh, by some pretty modern transportation. Uh, you go home to your pretty modern house or a place you live. But hear this, there is no doubt that there is a war being waged inside your own heart and in your own home, just like there was on that mountain in Mount Carmel. The question that we will always be answering, who or what will we worship? And that will either always be God or it will be something else that we have set up as a God. None of us get out of that. And if you're like me, though, you hear that story and you're like, yo, but that got gross, didn't it? Like they took out like swords and knives and started cutting themselves. We would, we don't do that. Like not, that's not something, that's not something we very much get into mainstream American Christianity. Doesn't have that as part of our ritual, does it? Uh, Chris Wright says this. He says, all idolatry is radical self-harm. Anytime that we substitute a false savior for the true and living God, it is detrimental, not just to ideations in our brain, but our actual lives and the fabric of our relationships. All idolatry is radical self-harm. And boy, do we have idols. 
Uh, we're just going to go through four. Tim Keller marks these out in his book, Counterfeit Gods. Uh, these are really helpful ways to think about things that can very often capture our hearts or our imaginations. The first is comfort or experience. It's a quality of life that says, if I can experience this quality of life, then I will have made it. Then I am good. And so that could be pleasure. It could be induced by circumstances or situations or substances. It could be why we're always on Airbnb or always looking to book flights we'll never actually take or going in debt, taking trips that we shouldn't be taking. Like all these pieces, why does it come? Because I want this quality of comfort. Amazon knows it and they market it to you like a boss. Uh, the second, control. Uh, that, that, that characteristic of life where we want and must be in control, that we are the ones mastering other people's destinies or in control of our own, own, or we have to manage and manipulate all these different circumstances so they turn out just the way we want them. And when they don't, watch out because we lose our stuff or we get super anxious and hold ourselves off because we can't control this world, so maybe I can just control myself. This is often what lies underneath a lot of uh, eating disorders, right? Or it's what lies underneath uh, the way that we choose to parent our kids or different things like this. It's desire ultimately to be in control and to take control of little small parts of the world because everything else seems so out of control. Uh, next, success. Uh, success as marked out by uh, the world, right? The, the cultural systems in this world that says the higher up, the more promotions you get, the more worthwhile you are. The more you own, the more you are. The more you produce, the better quality actual person you are. The more value you have to society, uh, we look and get obsessed with promotions or obsessed with amassing the stuff to let other people know and to signal that we've made it, right? Or approval living and dying for the stamp of approval of other people that we don't even like that much. And if you've been here, you know exactly what this feels like, that ache in your heart that comes when you hear that two other friends got together and they didn't invite you and you're like, do they not like me? Doesn't matter that it was a two-seater bike. They couldn't fit three people. We have that feeling, right? That we wonder. Basically anything that you would answer this Mad Lib with, if I only had blank, then I'd be good. So you can play this Mad Lib at home on your own time. But it's not cute, it's not funny, right? This is devastating stuff. This is the stuff that wrecks lives, ruins families, trashes our relationships and leaves us feeling empty. Do you see why idolatry can be radical self-harm? Each of these things uh, keeps us from living out our God-called identity too. It did for Israel and it will for us. If we desperately crave, or maybe let me change that, when we desperately crave the approval of others, we aren't able to serve them because we need them and their approval to serve us. Uh, when we are driven by a need to succeed, we will, uh, we will call, we will no longer answer the call to love because we have to leverage our relationships. Uh, like, like you're only as good to me as you put me forward. And so I'll network with the people that can move me socially forward, right? Uh, but not the people that had nothing to offer me. Uh, this was still true in Jesus' time. You can look at all his parables. They come right at this, this idea of reciprocity and loving those who can give nothing to you. You'll never be able to do that if you're driven by a need to succeed. When we crave comfort, we will never sacrifice for the good of others. When we are driven by an insatiable need to control, we will almost always manipulate others rather than mercifully being the hands and feet of Jesus to them. Uh, make no mistake, this battle on Mount Carmel and the battle that we are in is one for the hearts. Will we worship God or will we worship something else?
And then I love what Elijah did in this story though. He comes out and he gives a very simple, selfless prayer. Uh, he, he says it as simple as, God, you're the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, which is another name for Jacob. I'm gonna ask that you come down and you burn up the sacrifice so that these people know that you're the God and you're turning your hearts back to them. This was not a wordy prayer. This was not asterful use of the language he's spoken. This was not him taking his Hebraic pronunciation and making this all weave together to rhyme so that God was really impressed. He didn't put it to a beat or have a soundtrack, right? He just slows down, stops, and prays to God this simple prayer that is very specific, and God answers. And God answers. I would love for us to ask the question coming out of this, and if you're taking notes, jot this down. Uh, one, ask the question, what gods, what false gods am I prone to trust? And, and catch this, ask this question, where have they failed me in the past? Where have they failed me in the past? Because here's the deal. Uh, Chris Ray also says this line, and it's amazing. He says, false gods never fail to fail, but we never seem to fail to forget that. Like, like there's never been a false god that's actually delivered you what it's promised. And the longer you live, the more times they will let you down. But somehow we always forget that. So what are those things? Make a note, be reflective. What are the things that right now in my life, maybe take those four, comfort, control, approval, and success, that my heart is prone to worship? And catch this, that can switch over time. So if there was a point in your life where you're like, yo, that was always comfort, it could very easily switch to control in this season of life. Uh, that's where I found myself as I was reflecting on this. I'm almost always, every time I've preached, if, if you've heard me preach through these idols, I have a story for how my God is comfort and I want these experiences because then they make me feel like I am alive and so I'll chase the experience to be able to feel alive. Uh, this last season, I was reflecting on the questions around control and it was like I was preaching to myself. I was like, oh goodness. Like I went back and listened to a sermon on the four G's that I had taught because I was gonna have our DNA group do it. And so as I'm listening to it, I, the preacher, the preacher was really good, uh, by the way, it's a great sermon. Uh, and he goes through comfort and I'm like, oh, that's nifty. And then when he's going through, when I'm going through preaching to myself, right, uh, about control, every single question I asked to diagnose, hey, uh, do you maybe have a control issue right now? It was like, check, check, oh dear. Like I got halfway through getting convicted by the spirit using my own words. And I'm like, did I really preach this? How do you guys sit under this and not send me, man, they can switch around. False gods are tricky. So what are the things that we're prone to worship? And then the second thing I'd say, is there a practice to put on? Uh, try this, pray simple, specific prayers to the true and living God. Uh, when you're in the chaos, when you're in the moment, when you're feeling the pressure, when you're, you're realizing the failing structures or the failing gods or the failing health or the failing marriage or the failing parenting or the failing neighborhood, all these things that are letting you down, rather than trying to muster up and be like, man, I gotta get just the right words so that God listens to me. And so I'm gonna hit this and I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna give him a poem and then I'll wrap it into the song and maybe even give him an illustration. That'll be good. Simple, specific prayers that reflect God's character back. I wanna give us just a second for that maybe. Uh, not having to caveat because we love to, Christians love to caveat the crap out of things, don't we? Like, God, would you, would you heal this person? But I get it if you don't, because if you don't, I, like we have to rationalize for ourselves instead of just saying, God, will you heal? Or God, will you free? Or God, will you forgive? Or God, will you show mercy? Or God, will you give me wisdom? And so I'm gonna give us a moment 
Would you just take a moment, and is there a specific prayer that the Spirit etches on your heart really quick? And if he does, jot that down with today's date on it. But take a moment. I'm going to give us 60 seconds of haunting silence. Is there a specific prayer that maybe the Spirit's leading you to pray right now for yourself or someone else? Yes, this is a story where God shows up in grandeur, but, but Elijah's role in this was so simple. It was profound. He had to have a lot of faith, but it was simple as well. He offered this prayer, and God's the one who acts. I was a few months ago at the elders of Missio Dei Community. So across all three of our churches, we have one that meets in Phoenix. Uh, we have one that meets in Tempe. We have one that meets here in Mesa. So you guys found us. Well done. Uh, we were getting together to pray over the church. Like one of the things that we do when we do that is to literally put all your names up on a dry erase board. And so if you're a part of Missio Dei Communities, your name was on the dry erase board. And this is a way that we practice what we believe God has called elders to do, uh, which is to pray for the people that are given their care, right? So you guys get prayed for. That's part of the work of leading a church is not coming up with strategy foremost, but it's praying for you like crazy. And so we spent 30 minutes praying uh, for the names on that as the Spirit would give us simple, specific prayers that were like, if God did this, how cool would it be that that person says, hey, do you know what happened in my life? And we're like, yeah, we prayed for that. Like, not so we had the swagger, but just to give the praise to God. Like, this is what he does, and this is what we're asking for you when you have no idea. Uh, one of the things that we asked for, one of the congregations had a guy that was struggling. Uh, he was trying to figure out, this is the prayer, God help fill in the blank, to get out of his job, running stuff back and forth across the border without getting killed. Like he has a vocation, he had a job that he was trying to get out of, which is moving stuff back and forth across the Mexican border by some people who don't usually let you just walk away. Uh, two weeks later, we hear, hey, he got out and he got out clean uh, and he was all right. Uh, we prayed for someone else uh, that they would be healed of cancer and they went in for their cancer scan, came out clear. We also prayed for uh, a relationship that was super fragmented and broken and feeling the devastating effects of sin in this world. And it is still broken and hurt and feeling the devastated effects of sin in this world. I say that because not every time we pray something, God does it right on the time clock. And you're like, yo, it's been my two weeks. Uh, God's doing 10,000 things. We see three. And so that situation, we're still praying over saying, God, would you resolve and bring healing and bring freedom and bring what only you can bring in reconciliation and forgiveness of deep wounds. So we're still praying for that one, but we're hoping for that to fall sometime soon. I say that to say, uh, this is something that we wanna grow in together as a church, as Missio communities, that we can be men and women, and yes, even children who feel a freedom to come before the Father in the chaos and pray simple, specific, prayers, asking God to move. And then sometimes he does, right? There is that power and that beauty when God moves in an absolutely majestic way. Splendor, right? Lightning striking. Uh, Baal's a God of thunder and lightning in case you didn't know, and he couldn't spark this fire. God's a God of love and mercy, and he lights that sucker up, right? Like showing I am the true God in control of absolutely everything. It's mind-blowing. So Elijah has this experience, and I never preach, I never preach uh, 1 Kings 18 without also preaching 19, because because to send you out of here, you come out, oh yeah, this is epic, let's roll. I'm gonna go do some crazy stuff. And then you find out that the real world doesn't always work that way. Or that you find out life in God's kingdom does not always work fast and big, right? You realize that things stay broken for a really long time. You realize that Israel was enslaved for 430 years. That's longer, I think, right, than America's been around. Just doing basic math, I have a theology degree, but I think I'm right on that one. The very next story 
starts in 1 Kings 19. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. All right, so you're, you're a logical human being. I see you here. Um, you're looking back saying those gods that you just proved were ineffective. Like, like that one time that I just, I, yep, I took them all out. Yep, that one time literally just happened when lightning fell from the sky and fire consumed. And there was this moment where everybody, the whole nation turned back and was at their minds blown. Like that moment that just defined, and probably defined a lot of people's lives. Like where they're like, I remember when that happened, I can follow this God. You mean that moment you're, you're gonna do with those gods that couldn't do anything? Catch this, fear isn't always rational. We have some really high moments in intimacy with God. We also have some very fear-driven, anxious ones, and we can't always define when they're gonna come at us. I want us to read this chapter because some of us are gonna come away and have been raised to think that you should always be uh, on fire, no pun intended, always be convinced of the goodness of God and his ability to deliver, and then when we don't, we don't know what to do and we run from God and his community because we're like, maybe there's something wrong with me. I feel this way. And I love that this story is in here because it's the very next story. Our boy just called fire from heaven. Literally, I've never done that. And the next story is this one that we're going to read. These next lines, verse three, Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. You stay here, you're the last line of defense. I'm going on alone even deeper away from this lady. He came to a broom bush and sat down there and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, take my life. I'm no better than any of my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and he fell asleep, catch the intonance, hoping he didn't wake up. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. And he looked around and there by his head was some baked bread over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. Uh, catch that beauty and that, that mystery and that compassion. You look like you needed something to eat, man. Eat this, drink this. Then the angel of the Lord came to him back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for this journey is too much for you. Isn't that not the line of every person looking to follow God in this world? Hey, this journey's too much for you. You're gonna need what I provide. So he got up and he ate and he drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. Remember, this was the same mountain with the burning bush. Do you guys remember that story? Same story where Moses had his encounter with God, the true and living God who called him, assured him, and commissioned him out. And then he went into a cave and he spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. I want you to hear this, uh, not just as a prophet who was calling down fire, but maybe as a Christian parent or as a student. Uh, hear it as an MC leader or somebody that's been involved in life together as a missional community, looking to do justice in a deeply broken world and gotten your butt kicked a little bit by it. Anybody ever been there? We've been doing, show me your hands, right? Heads nodding all around. Hear this as that person, not just on behalf of Elijah. I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left. Now they're trying to kill me too. God, I've been very zealous, and now I'm alone in this and feel like you're not doing anything. It's getting a little bit more personal. 
But when you're there, find hope in this story. The Lord said, get out of my sight. No, that's not what yours says, right? If you're not following along, you're like, really? No, that's not what it says. He says, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is gonna pass by. And then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when, and when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and he went out and he stood in the mouth of the cave. And then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I've been very zealous. I had this speech memorized. I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They torn down your altars and they put your prophets to death with the sword. And I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me. And the Lord said to him, get back on the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. And when you get there, anoint Haziel, king over Aram, and also Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, who's going to be kind of a big deal. We're not going to get into a lot of them, but this guy's kind of a big deal. Uh, Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel Manoah to succeed you as prophet. Uh, that's a big, so you guys just are like, wait, that is, syllables are weird, none of those names. Uh, read it like this, all right? Go anoint John's king over Israel. And then anoint Elisha, the next prophet. Hey, there is still plenty of work to be done. I am still in control, just like I was on that mountain. I have a new king lined up. I actually have your successor lined up. I actually still have work for you to do, even though you thought you were done and wanted to tap out. Like, I love you too much to leave you here. I've built you up. I've nourished you. I've been my presence with you. And now I'm going to send you to continue on the way. Oh, by the way, you don't go alone. I, will reserve, I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and those mouths have not kissed him. So Elijah went from there and, Elijah went from there and found Elisha. Stop. That's a lot, I know. Catch this, and don't miss this. God speaks, not in the fire, not in the storm, not in the, he speaks in the whisper. But don't miss it, right? God speaks in the mind-bending miracles, but also in everyday activity. A God speaks in the marvelous and in the mundane. A God speaks in spectacular stories that echo out for ages and small moments that only the person who experiences them ever find out about. He speaks in incredible feats, but also everyday struggles with the faith. He melts our minds with wondrous works, but he also melts our hearts with soft whispers. Uh, this is the God that we still follow. Uh, this is the God who still reigns, who still rules, who still walks with us. And I love this. What does God do? And we have to pay attention to this because we are going to be standing in Elijah's sandals someday. True story. We will all be in that place. We will be sitting down, feeling the grip of overwhelming fear and anxiety. We will feel alone in life. We will wonder why God has ever called us to these people in this place when all they ever do is reject us. And then why has God called us to live this way at this time with these people? Doesn't he know what they're like? We will be curled up wishing it was all over. The only thing different is that Elijah probably didn't have Netflix to numb it out.
just this year, uh, Easter, I was, you guys were here, I was preaching. If you guys remember, what did we preach about? The resurrection of Jesus. And we talked about how he had risen from the dead and that brought a brand new day. And that means life and freedom and healing and forgiveness are all possible and not just possible. They are here and the kingdom has broken in and the power of Satan's sin and death is done. Do you guys remember? It was legit. Uh, I was, man, it was good. We had a good time celebrating, singing, rejoicing. That old order is done and Jesus reigns. I usually leave my phone on do not disturb during the service uh, because my family loves to text during this time. Like I have a group thread. I had to take my, I had to take my mom off of my favorites list because even when I do not disturb it, this text still comes through on that thread because she's on the thread. So sorry, mom. Um, but I took her off my favorites list because they would always text her in that time. So I put it in just straight up airplane mode now. So like, ain't nobody gonna mess with me. And so when I took airplane mode off that night, right? That very night, that Easter night, the night that we guys all got to share and celebrate and be like, man, God is good. I got a text saying my, somebody in my family had been involved in a domestic violence situation. There was custody stuff at play that night. There was, uh, what are they called? Restraining orders in place. Like that dings through, right? Ding, 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 ding. I get another text series of thread with a few other friends saying one of my other friends has relapsed and was clinging to life, like barely alive, held on by life support. The Narcan had hit him, but they weren't sure if it was in enough time. It didn't wake him up like they thought it would. Ding, 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 ding. And with every ding, it was like the enemy was had this nagging, like, you really think my power is gone? Okay, you can, you can talk up front, but you really think it's gone? That friend's almost dead. That friend, that sibling, right, is going through this situation. And like feeling like going from a place of beauty and God is incredible and look what he's doing. I mean, we had people in this room that had not been in this room for the whole entire pandemic, right? You guys were back receiving communion for the very first time in over a year with Missio. Like that was a moment of like brought tears to my eyes sitting here, right? And then I'm driving home and I have those same tears in my eyes, but for a different reason. Like, all right, God, couldn't give me one night? Are you? I know you are, but are you? We will all be in those sandals at some point. And some of us, probably all of us on repeat. So before I go to my few last points, I want you to turn to that group you were with for just one more second. I'll turn back to the text. What does God do for Elijah when he's in that moment? I'm gonna give you like two, three moments. So I, I need you to talk quick and, and get rolling with it. Look down at your Bibles. What does God do for Elijah in that moment when he's literally given up? Go ahead and turn towards a few people around you and answer that question, list off some things, uh, and then I'll pull us back. Two minutes on the clock. Ready, set, go. Well, what were some of the things? What did, what did God do for Elijah? I want to cement this in for us because if he did it for him, he'll do it for us. What are those things that he did for Elijah? He, not alone, right? Reminded him he's not alone. How did you see that? There's more than one way in the text. Um, I was thinking about how he provided Elijah to go yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. Where else did you see him? Uh, so he provided Elijah for him to go afterwards. Where else did you see him remind Elijah that he was not alone? The angel showed up. Yep. The angel showed up and meets his knee, right? You're not alone. I got you. There's this other one who found you hiding in a cave, right? And he's got you. What did you say? Yeah, 7K, right? If you have that many followers on Instagram, you are an influencer, right? 7,000 people 
have not ever bowed down and they don't even need to repent and turn back to God. They've never even been there. They're still with Yahweh. Like, get excited. You have a community to go with. Come on now. Oh, what else? What else did you see? God gave him justice. What do you mean? That's good. That's good. He promised, I'm going to use your words, right? He promised a future day of justice when it would be made right, what he was experienced that was made wrong. One or two more things. What did you see in the story? How does God, what does he do for Elijah? Yeah. Yeah, hey, Elijah, there's still more to do. I'm not done and you're not done. There's more work to be done. Isn't that beauty? Like in our culture, a lot of times we're gonna be like, oh man, this person seems so fragile. So it's like, let's just tell them they all right. Like you are, you're gonna be all right. And then maybe someday later we'll tell them there's still work to be done, right? But God with this beauty, and we'll probably get it wrong more than God does, just gonna say that. But he still says, hey, and there's still more to do. You're still invited to play your role in my story. I have more to do and you have more to do. Your struggle with faith does not mean no longer that you are useful for me in my kingdom. Your struggle with faith does not mean that you no longer have a place at my table. In fact, I'm feeding you right now as I'm telling you, I see you in your struggle and I raise you my sovereignty. Let's roll. I love that he gave him something to eat. <laughs> How many spiritual battles would be solved if you ate a Snickers? Like, right, I'm feeling weak, I'm feeling tired, I'm feeling hungry. And he's like, here, eat something, then we're gonna talk. I have learned that as a very strategic move, by the way, in dealing with people in a houseless situation. When you start telling them all about this good news, but they're hungry, it doesn't matter, right? I've learned that in my marriage, but we're not gonna go there. We'll stick with the other one, right? Like, here's something to eat. Uh, catch this. Uh, he draws Elijah's attentions to the gifts that God had already provided for him as he lived out his calling. He reminded him of his presence. He shows up and he talks with him. Here's some food. Take it and eat it. it was, you were sleeping and it was prepared for you. Remember, I've done this for you. Enjoy it even while you struggle. Not on the other side of the struggle, but even as you struggle to believe that I am God. Eat this food that I have prepared for you. I know you're in the middle of it. I know you're going through it. Enjoy my presence and my provision. Uh, an acknowledgement, yes, this journey is too much for you. A reminder that here's the community who stands faithful with you. And a reminder that I've still got work for you to do. You still have purpose. So why does this matter? Uh, first, we need to remember that there isn't a war for our allegiance that we are in the middle of right now. There is not a moment where there's not claimed by Jesus, you're mine, and a counterclaim by the enemy saying, nah, I've got it better. Do you really trust that God? Do you really trust that one? Look at how your life is going. Is that really who you want to trust? Come to me. I have a much quicker, a much more uh, helpful, a much easier solution for you. Just bow your knee to me and I will give you provision and protection and the experiences you want. It's the same lie he told Adam and Eve. It's the same lie that he, Jesus battled when he was in the wilderness and said, no, I trust the Father. We will always be battling. Do we want to trust false flimsy saviors or the true and living God? And we will need to remember to look at what God has already provided for us as we live as his new creation people. We need to be reminded of his presence, 
Uh, Jesus said, I am with you to the very end of the age. That age has not ended. Jesus is still with us himself. He has given his spirit to the church to fill us for the work that we have to do. We have Emmanuel, God with us. And sometimes we need to remember that. We need to see the provision that he has given for us. Not just bread, but Jesus, the bread of life. And before you discount that as a Jesus juke, that is a real thing. He came and he used bread on purpose because that is something that they used to nourish their bodies. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. So we take and we eat and we're nourished for our journey that is too long without him. Uh, we need to remember that this journey is too much for us if we go alone, but we do not go alone. We go with God and we need to look around at the community who goes with us. It may not be 7,000 here in Missio Mesa, but take a snapshot across the valley. There is a lot of people being faithful to the call that God has put on their lives who are not bowing down their knee to this idol or that idol, but only to Yahweh. And we work together as one family in this place. And we need to re-engage after these experiences as is witnessing people announcing good news. God is who he says he is and his kingdom is here. So when the work seems too much, when the cost seems too great, when the energy has run out, when the crippling, crippling fear captures your soul, God catches, moves towards you. He didn't make Elijah find him. He found Elijah. Genesis 3, he did the same thing with Adam, right? Adam, where are you? Do you catch the same? Elijah, what are you doing here? And God absolutely is still at work in you and will be at work through you. Here's three invitations. One, an invitation to pray simple, specific prayers. Take this practice, try it on, see how it feels. You can return it if you want to. I doubt you'll want to once you start having a conversation with God though and start talking, it'll shift you. An invitation to create space to hear the whispers. You don't have to go hide in a cave, but maybe turn off some of the noise coming into your life to let God whisper reminders to your heart, to let him remind you of who he is to remind you of who you are, to remind you of what he's done. And that does not always happen in the noise. Yes, God speaks in the chaos, but don't hunt that down and look for him. That's gonna come. Uh, look and carve out the quiet moments where you can listen to the voice of the spirit coming in the whisper, where he's rewriting your story, healing your past, giving you hope. And then the third is an invitation to the table. And so it wasn't just the angel who said to Elijah, come and eat because you need to be nourished. Uh, Jesus actually said the same words. This is my body broken for you. Take it and eat it in remembrance of me. And so we come to the table to remember God's grace for our journey. We come to the table to remember God's provision for us. We come to the table to remember his presence with us. And every time we come, we declare the mystery, right? That, that Jesus has lived, Jesus has died, Jesus has risen again, and he will come again. He didn't stay dead, but when he ascended to the Father, he promises he will return full of power as a king to finally and fully do justice to make all things right. And that day is coming, as sure as this day happened to Elijah, we can look forward with hope that one day Jesus will return. And so, Missio, uh, would you guys pray with me? I'm going to give you a moment.